This is a crusade. This is a holy war against the deep state. Where are the dictators? Where are the strong men? Donald Trump is our instrument for retribution. I'm going to fight for Christians. I'm going to fight for white people. They have the Great Reset. We have the Great Awakening. And why shouldn't I root for Russia? Because Which I am. I want to see these people go through misery because of their grooming against our children. After the assailant entered the home asking, where's Nancy? Where's Nancy? Those are the very same words used by the mob when they stormed the United States Capitol. I did nothing wrong. Welcome to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast, where we cut through the noise and help you make sense of the chaotic information space around us. I'm Griff Somke. And I'm Jay McKenzie. Kelly Weil is a reporter for the Daily Beast who covers issues such as disinformation, extremists, and the extremely online. She's the author of the book, Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. Kelly also has her own newsletter, Mom Left, which covers the intersection of parenting and politics. We're thrilled to have her with us today. Kelly, welcome to Did Nothing Wrong. Thanks for joining us. Hey, guys. Thank you for having me. We are stoked. This is going to be a lot of fun. So can you tell us just a little bit about yourself and what you do? Yeah, for sure. I am a reporter at The Daily Beast where I cover the far right and its opponents. I'm also the author of Off the Edge. It's a book about flat earth and other conspiracy theories. And I am the author of a substack called Mom Left. It's a new newsletter for moms on the left. Mm, nice. And we've noticed that like a lot of your work gets into conspiracy theories of one sort or another. And how did this become an interest for you? Um, You know, I'm just really interested in people being wrong on the internet. Uh, no, I was, uh, <laughs> honestly, I kind of grew up as a, a 4chan lurker, right? I always ah. uh, was, I was really interested, not a poster, but definitely a lurker, interested in what people were doing in the weird corners of the internet and frankly, why. And, you know, as we moved into the 2016 election cycle, what was just kind of a weird, uh, almost scientific interest for me turned into an unfortunately relevant beat in American politics. So I was able to parlay that into a beat that, God, I wish it became irrelevant, but unfortunately is still uh, very resonant in the discourse today. Yeah, still, if uh, anything, getting worse, unfortunately. You brought up your book and the title is Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture and Why People Will Believe Anything. So we did have to ask after writing that, did you did you come to a conclusion on why people will believe anything? You know, there, I think there's a lot of reasons people come to flat earth and other conspiracy theories. I think one of the most obvious answers is that they're looking for comfort, right? We live in a really confusing, destabilizing era when people are looking for easy answers that just aren't available. Things are complicated. And I think in some ways, conspiracy theories allow for the simplification of a complicated world. It says you don't need to factor in all these elements outside your control, or at the very least, you can assume that somebody else is in control. I think it offers a really uh, consolidated answer and a really comforting narrative for people who want to understand what seems unavailable to them. Right. Definitely. That seems to be where we're at with a lot of society at this point where things are just way out of control. Most people feel like things are rushing ahead of where they have any reference point for and grabbing onto something like that. I can definitely see how that would be very comforting to a lot of people out there. 
Yeah, absolutely. And it does make me wonder your opinion and perspective in terms of how much do you blame the government, society as a whole of, of not helping people enough, not doing enough? And is that a is that directly resulting in, in more people who go searching? I think it does, uh, at the very least, indirectly. I think a lot of uh, conspiracy belief can be tied to a lack of feeling of social cohesion. People don't feel like they have uh, security or they don't feel like they have community. And unfortunately, conspiracy theories uh, suggest an answer to both of those, although I'd argue they're not really satisfying or real answers. When people join a uh, conspiracy movement, they do join a community and a really vocal one, too. It's a community that says everybody else is wrong, maybe even everybody else out to get you, but we here in the Flat Earth community, or we here in QAnon, we're the ones who really know what's up, and we've got your back, and you're one of us now. Mm-hmm. I think that's really compelling to a lot of people who are looking for answers, who are looking for identity. And I think, you know, to the to your point about um, just sort of security or uh, having some kind of safety net, I think um, Conspiracy theories also gesture at that. I'm thinking of this awful one I wrote about a while ago where uh, people have been foregoing actual medical treatment because they think there's going to be some miracle medical device called the med bed coming oh. up. They're just they're skipping chemo appointments. They're not going to the doctor because they <sighs> want so desperately to believe that this uh, fountain of youth is going to uh, become available any month now. So I think conspiracy theories do offer community and they offer cope. Hmm. So jumping topics a little bit, let's talk a little about the cop city issue. We've seen large protests both in Atlanta, Georgia and around the country about the construction of police training facilities, which have been nicknamed cop city. Recently, 61 protesters were charged with RICO violations by the Georgia state attorney general in which some are calling a massive overreach. You've written extensively about this issue What can you tell us about how all this started and where it's going? Oh, man. Uh, Yeah, this is one of my my personal kind of hair on fire uh, topics that I'm I'm glad we're talking about because I feel like it doesn't get quite enough attention. Basically, um, after the George Floyd protests, uh, a lot of cities, despite, you know, kind of mouth sounds about uh, making better police uh, civilian relations really doubled into investing more money into police, be that, uh, you know, larger police forces, more police infrastructure. In Atlanta, the answer was we're going to build this uh, big police training facility in uh, in a, kind of a forested area. Um, and it would cost something to the tune of $90 million. Now, you can imagine why that would annoy people on a couple fronts. One, you know, it's um, uh, if you listen to environmental groups around Atlanta, that forest is really quite important in terms of, you know, preventing like a heat island effect in terms of uh, uh, reducing runoff water that's going to become increasingly an issue as climate change accelerates. Uh, People are also pretty appalled at the cost and people are pretty appalled at the idea that this is the facility where they would be, you know, carrying out SWAT trainings. There would be uh, persistent gunshots coming uh, from this training facility near a, um, a disadvantaged community. So there are a lot of reasons folks don't really want this facility. Um, 
protests kind of percolated over the past year or so and really escalated this summer. That's when um, police shot and killed a protester named Tortuguita, who was uh, in a uh, in a tent in the forest. Police uh, claimed Tortuguita shot at them. There are a lot of autopsies that really cast, I would say, significant doubt on that claim. And as people uh, have become, I think, understandably mobilized around that killing and around that cause, uh, police and prosecutors have only doubled down in the arrests of people on really, really spurious evidence. Like there was a legal music festival near another protest and they started rounding up people at the music festival saying you had mud on your shoes, so you're probably trespassing or um, you know, they arrested a, uh, a, a National Lawyers Guild legal observer who was there for the explicit purposes and was designated as being someone who was observing these protests, making sure everything was uh, conducted uh, according to standards. And they have charged pretty much everybody they can with RICO violations, including people who are accused of things like uh, running a bail fund or that uh, National Lawyers Guild right. uh, attorney. And I think... People need to understand just how significant a RICO charge is in Georgia. We've heard, ironically, a lot about this because Donald Trump is accused of RICO in Georgia. And people are saying, hey, hey it's really hard to get pardoned for RICO in Georgia. It's a mandatory minimum of five years after which not the governor, but a specific parole board can theoretically get you off of uh, prison. Um, that's not good. No. <laughs> it's not good if you are a... Uh, a bail fund organizer, or very frankly, anybody who's, you know, worst case, someone did property damage here. And I, you know, maybe, maybe shouldn't be uh, stating my views so openly here, but I don't think, you know, what's, what's the worst someone did damage to police car. Okay. There's, there's charges for that, but it's not a racketeering charge for the majority of someone's life. It's, it just, it seems extremely heavy handed to me. So that does make me wonder and as i've been reading these stories i just remain curious in terms of who's leading this push is it police does it feel like it's coming from the governor's office i know some of that can be murky and hard to say but it it almost feels like there is a need on the right politically to find a false equivalence well when you've got all of these charges against donald trump and you've got Proud Boys and Oath Keepers going down for seditious conspiracy charges over January 6th. Do you think it's at least possible that that some of this is is politically driven and, and rather deliberate attempt to say, oh, well, the, the left does it too? You know, I do think there is something to that. I mean, I'm not in anybody's heads here, but the choice to charge these protesters with RICO is, it's frankly jaw-dropping. It is a really, really weird choice. And other protesters, a lot of the same defendants have been charged with terrorism. For the only, you know, the only evidence, uh, the only charges attached to that terrorism enhancement are things like misdemeanor trespassing. So this is, I mean, this is a wild prosecution here. And I don't think you arrive at that without, you know, trying to send a message. And so I do think there is something to the idea that this is um, this is messaging to the left. This is saying that, you know, we're not going to tolerate it from you folks either. Um, and I also think even without January, um, January 6th having happened, I think this overall Stop Cop City movement is one of the boldest kind of 
civil uh, resistance movements happening right now. It is a city, and really, I mean, if you look at public comment sections about the cop city construction, there's really broad opposition to this in Atlanta. It is not just, you know, outside instigators coming in and causing ruckus. There's really broad opposition to this police expansion effort. And I think to lose that battle of opinion would be a blow to state apparatus in Georgia. So I think they have a lot on the line invested in making sure that this kind of dissent doesn't go unpunished. You know, even looking at the indictment itself, it's 109 pages, and it seems like this is as much of an attempt to put a philosophy on trial as it is to put Mm -hmm. people on trial. You've got things like mutual aid being a thing that's apparently criminalized now and explaining like the idea that if you, like you said, run a bail fund or if you run some kind of support system for people who have been incarcerated, you are a part of this conspiracy. Like they're taking some of the language in terms of what, what people from the anarchism scene have managed to talk about and they've made that criminal and that's terrifying to a large extent. It's like you're getting dangerously close to prosecuting a belief system here. It is. It really is. Um, and, you know, I've, I've said it before that I think anarchists are often sort of the canary in the coal mine for uh, civil rights crackdowns where a lot of people hear anarchists and they say, absolutely, I don't want anything to do with that. It's inherently criminal. Whereas most of the anarchists I know are like, mm-hmm. oh, no, they're doing food drives, man. Like it, yeah. it's, it's one of the biggest uh, disconnects between public perception and, uh, you know, actual activities I've ever seen. And uh, what this indictment is actually describing, a lot of the overt acts it describes are, you know, really uh, generic acts of solidarity, really commonplace activities on the left, be it uh, mutual aid, be it bail funds, be it showing up for each other. And this indictment is taking those activities, uh, taking these things that I think in many cases are just uh, almost unambiguous moral good mm-hmm. and couching them in the language of anarchism, which, you know, uh, in much of public perception is scary and bad and saying that, you know, if you run a bail fund, you are complicit in this dark, scary uh, ideology with the black flags. And, you know, I do want to expand on that because even though I'm sure not everybody listening to this is going to be like, well, okay, anarchism is good now. But I I really do think this sets a troubling precedent for other uh, political movements right now. I mean, the idea that running a bail fund makes you complicit in a crime I would really liken that to uh, efforts to crack down on abortion funds right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, if you are in a state that criminalizes abortion, if you're in a Texas that allows you to sue anybody who's been involved in an abortion, if you're in an Alabama that's attempting to criminalize uh, travel across state lines for abortion, well, it stands to reason that you could criminalize people running abortion funds. And I just I see a lot of really troubling groundwork being laid here in this cop city case. Yeah. And I think that's why it's so scary to a lot of people that have dug into it at all. You hair on fire is a pretty good way to refer to it. The more you start looking into it, the more you're like, this is nuts. They are talking about charging people who are writing letters to incarcerated people. Mm -hmm. It's wild. 
And I did want to say, I agree with you entirely. These are charges against people who are doing unambiguous good, but at the same time, there is a whole host of right-wing influencers who would tell you that these activities are evil, especially if we go back to 2020 and the George Floyd protests. They, these right-wing influencers would say, oh, you're letting criminals out. Oh, you, you want to give people a pass. Oh, they're burning down our cities and how dare you allow this to happen and then free these people. And they've created such an echo chamber that it, it sort of feels like the people who wrote this indictment, maybe you're reading those tweets or at least agree with that sentiment. That's a great point. It is interesting. You do see a lot of uh, very inflammatory language in this indictment, you know, just the idea of mutual aid being this uh, shadowy communist uh, ideology instead of just, you know, something people have done throughout all of history, right? Um, and and there, there is kind of a, a a bail funds for me, but not for the sort of element of this, right? Where you've got Trump supporting bail funds for January six defendants. So it's 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 always a very hypocritical accusation. And yet, yeah, I, I definitely do think you're right that um, that this just sort of public uh, opinion campaign against the left and against really innocuous left organizing has definitely been running since at least 2020. Wow. Yeah. So speaking of people who popped up in kind of strange places in 2020, um, I remember seeing the Drake meme of, you know, liking this, not liking that pop up (laughs) with Amon Bundy's face photoshopped into it, liking Black Lives Matter, not liking Bureau of Land Management. He's been in the news again recently, and you've covered him and his various legal issues quite extensively. So for those of us who are possibly unfamiliar with him, those of us who you know didn't grow up in the Eastern Washington like me and maybe haven't kept up with him since he was one of the leaders of the Malheur National Wildlife Refuge standoff in 2016, who is this guy? What has he been up to and why is he relevant to the conversation in 2023 and beyond? Sure. So Ammon Bundy, he's part of the Bundy clan. You know, he, um, his family was involved, his primarily his father, um, Clive and Bundy in a standoff with federal agents, I believe 2014. And then Ammon himself led his own armed standoff in 2016. These are, uh, these are basically activists against the idea of public lands and more specifically, they're activists in the idea that, um, you know, they're, their cows should be able to graze on public lands for free. So they're uh, radical privatization activists, really. Um, Out of that movement, out of this idea that, uh, you know, there shouldn't be publicly funded lands or resources has come this group called the People's Rights Network. It's Bundy's mobilization network. It's this this kind of loosely affiliated organization that can mobilize to protest, say, uh, a mask mandate somewhere or a vaccine clinic or a hospital at very short notice. And in March 2022, I think, again, you might want to fact check me on specific dates, but um, there was a 
people's rights member whose grandson was briefly uh, treated in a hospital for malnutrition against the parents' will. Um, this was a uh, a child protective services case. This is where you know state agencies said, "Hey, this is kind of an emergency. You know, we we need to get this kid on fluids." Kid was returned to the parents and appears to be healthy now. However, Bundy is a very good uh, spokesperson for himself. He does know how to latch onto what is a somewhat sympathetic cause and turn it from something that has, I think, uh, populist appeal into something that is very keenly uh, right-wing and very pointedly conservative. So he took this I think sympathetic case of, oh no, what's going to happen to this child who's removed from his parents, even though again, it was a CPS case needed hospital treatment. And Ammon Bundy decided to accuse the hospital of child trafficking. He held protests in the hospital parking lot. He shut down an ambulance bay, causing ambulances to be rerouted. He basically derailed hospital staff's lives, implying that they were part of a, you know, like a QAnon, right? That they were abducting kids and trafficking them. He said in court that the hospital was stealing uh, Christian children to give to gay couples for sexual abuse, which I think really gives away his whole game. And uh, recently he has completely lost that case, didn't even show up to fight it. And so the hospital is now saying, okay, how do we collect on the many millions of dollars that you now owe us in damages? Yeah. And they're having a hard time nailing this guy down. He's claiming he's broke. He's claiming he has no money when in reality it's starting to look like he definitely has a little more than that stashed away here and there. And the scary part is that that guy's got a following out in the West. He's got at least enough people to show up that he can have them show up anytime it looks like there's going to be a standoff or a demonstration. And that seems to be the guy's end games, forcing the idea of a confrontation again with law enforcement. This is what he's sort of been doing ever since 2016. And he definitely seems to have a talent for it. Well, and when you, you mention child trafficking and Christian children, and he's, it seems like he's almost got a collection of buzzwords that he knows will mobilize an unknown, but some number of people. If you tell certain people, especially on the right, that there's child trafficking, well, maybe if they're a QAnon follower, they'll show up. Or if you say it's Christian children, then, well, certain people will show up for that to defend their religion or children who are white, perhaps. They might go into that, go into it with that assumption. But it is, it is fascinating and it does show his skill as a propagandist. Yeah, I think that I think a skilled propagandist is a good way to describe him. You know, I would say optimistically that I've seen fewer people rally to his cause over the duration of this court case where he's sort of um he's really been a coward. He hasn't showed up in court. I don't think that plays well with his base. But I mean, issues like child trafficking, even though Ammon Bundy is probably going to draw the most extreme fringe of people to show up, you know, armed to defend his house or whatever the hell. Um, movies like Sound of Freedom, The Summer, the uh, anti-trafficking oh, yes. Uh, film. Yes, that really does show that there is a kind of a latent base of ambiently right-wing people who are so moved to mobilize around these causes. And so I think maybe it's only a function of him not handling this court case well, maybe having overstepped 
uh, what he's capable of, that this isn't more of a pressing threat. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's he's definitely an individual that a little bit frightening, but he's always been kind of very self interested looking in from the outside. So, be interesting to see where that goes going forward. So, we also wanted to ask you about this because, in addition to your work at the Daily Beast, you recently started a Substack, which I don't know how you write this much, but you managed to do it, <laughs> and your <laughs> your Substack is called Mom Left. And we were curious to ask how you ended up getting started with this. Um, <laughs> I think part of the uh, kernel of this was having had my first child in January 2020, which was just an unbelievably radicalizing experience in the uh, ways that support networks and care were just cut off. Um, and, you know, so it's a project that's kind of been simmering in my mind for a while, but um you know, I do, uh, I, I do cover the right, and I'm very interested in the rights ideas of motherhood, especially as they've been weaponized over the past election cycle with groups like Moms for Liberty, with um, you know attacks on schools and libraries and LGBTQ youth being one of the uh, the kind of attack points of the right. And when I was looking for resources on the left that were intended intended to combat this, I didn't find too much. And I thought there was probably a place to uh, write something oppositional about this, not just writing about, you know, why you shouldn't be a trad wife and why this is a scam, but to write something kind of affirmative about being a mother on the left. And so um, it's it's been going for about a month now. It's been a whole host of fun. Um, and yeah, it's, it's, it's good. I'm riffing. It's something I've wanted to do for a bit. Oh, that's great. But it did make me think after reading a couple of your articles that if you look at a group like Moms for Liberty, I can't think of a left wing equivalent. And it does feel like there's a space there for this content, for this perspective, which I think is is great that you're filling. Thanks for that. Yeah, you know, it was kind of striking the absence of that. Uh, you know, there's right. some cynical reasons. I think, you know, groups like Moms for Liberty are uh, very likely to get donor money on the right that just doesn't exist on the left. Um, I think there is, you know, certainly a support uh, right wing blogosphere that is just eager, eager, eager for any women to step up and affirm what is a very patriarchal right wing vision of the world. Um, and so, you know, I don't think there's any... Uh, there, there's no money in doing this for the left, but when is there ever? Um, there, right. There's a lot of things on the left that there's just no money in doing, even though we really could use more people doing it. Mm. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, it's, um, listen, I, I love to be online. Uh, it, it is, it's my burden, but that's where I'm at. I like to write. And uh, I, I wanted to see if I could start a bit of a conversation about this. So it's been cool seeing the feedback the first few weeks. Nice. Nice. One of the articles you wrote recently for mom left was about school lunch debt and how it's skyrocketed with the expiration of the supports that were in place during the pandemic. And we know that feeding kids absolutely leads to measurably better outcomes, both in school and in life. Is there any other justification for some of these humiliating tactics that you outline that schools are using on students that are behind on their school lunch debt besides just being cruel? You know, uh, 
I, <laughs> I know it's a cliche to say the cruelty is the point, but often I do think it's sort of that, you know, um, there is, I, I got feedback from somebody who said they lived um, in a kind of purple state that had been discussing on talk radio about whether to keep uh, providing free lunches and the call-in uh, commenters, as is often the case in talk radio, were just ragging on these kids saying, well, we don't provide free uh, free housing for kids. And you know, to that, my answer is, well, you should. Um, mm-hmm. I think there is a real I got mine attitude in this country. Um, and so I think some people are inherently hostile to the idea that we should be providing just, you know, public goods for each other, especially something like free lunches. I mean, that costs pennies. It really Mm -hmm. does. I, you know, I also do think debt is a good vehicle for control. And I'm not saying that in a conspiracy way, there's no great cabal saying, you know, we're going to get into everyone's homes and control their finances. But um, I think debt is humiliating and it's, um, it's a real just sledgehammer to people's lives. And the way that school debt can depress a child's confidence in their will and uh, keep parents on the run and just, you know, just really keep a family frightened and insecure. I do think that dovetails pretty nicely with Republican programs that don't want people to have, you know, leisure, don't want people to have the economic wherewithal to, uh, to to make their own decisions to feel just a little bit more comfortable. And so I think even though school lunch debt is not, you know, numerically anywhere near student debt or uh, credit card debt, I think it's one of the most emotionally pointed debts that people can experience. Well, and especially with the tactics that they're using of making it clear to all the other kids in the, in the situation that, Hey, this kid can't afford lunch. You're basically singling these kids out as the, the others in that way and humiliating them even farther. This has got to be terribly negative for the psyche going forwards. There's no way that this doesn't affect you on some huge level. Well, and as someone who has worked with kids and I'm in Tennessee and I can only speak for the sentiment here, but it does seem to be a prevailing thought, at least with adults that this is not about whether or not kids eat. It's it's the parents. The parents just don't want to pay. Of course they could pay. They just don't want to. But I wish more people would stop and think about it and realize that some of a lot of these kids, most, if not all of these kids, if they don't eat at school, mm-hmm. they don't eat. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you really care about getting basic nutrition to kids, you cannot devise a better program than a school lunch where you buy food in bulk and distribute it evenly. You know, there's just absolutely no argument against it. And um, and the the idea that, well, the parents don't want to pay, I mean, we see this weaponized against so many public programs. We see it weaponized against even the idea of public schools, right? I mean, I've brought up uh, schooling and people say, oh, you mean the government daycares for K through 12? It's like, well, what's wrong with that? You know, so I think there is a real hostility toward the idea of giving things to families. And I, you know, people put kids on the front line of that. And I just think it's indefensible. Yeah. Right. As if as if uh, feeding kids is somehow full communism. And and for some people, though, it is. And, and that is something that essentially they believe. But I do 
love your articles and you bring together your opinion on your Substack along with a lot of facts. But it was interesting to me. I didn't realize how unpopular a lot of these right-wing ideas about education are because the right is really good at making it seem like they're a lot more popular than they are. There's a lot more local and a kind of groundswell of support for their issues, but the data does not reflect that. No, absolutely not. One of the first articles I wrote for my mom left Substack was uh, titled, They're Not With Us, because they're not. And I think this is the whole premise underlying something like Moms for Liberty. You have a very loud minority flooding institutions that don't usually see a lot of conflict, school board meetings, uh, very local elections, even just, you know, person to person conversations within the community. And they are just flooding the zone with this right wing messaging, really emotionally charged stuff, in some cases, implying that, uh, you know, oppositional teachers and administrators are pedophiles, that sort of thing, just just abhorrent. And I think this hijacks a lot of discourse in a way that people aren't used to. People don't really want that level of conflict. People aren't going to school board meetings with the uh, stated intention of brawling. So they've been able to step into this Mm -hmm. void pretty well. And, you know, I think it sort of taps into an antisocial nature of the right. Um, Most people would be put off by that idea. I I certainly am not conflict diverse and I don't want to go argue at my uh, school board meeting. But these are people who have a very different conception of the public and who don't really seem to mind getting in there and making things just a little bit more uncomfortable than everybody else uh, is inclined to. So one of the groups that has been really prominent in getting into the school boards and basically you know, going in and yelling at people in that context has been Moms for Liberty. And they have been a part of the nationwide Republican push to target school boards and ban so-called woke books from across the country. And they've been getting a lot of support from mainstream Republicans on this. So do you think a group like this is going to continue to grow in prominence? And if so, to what end? Yeah, I do, unfortunately. I mean, at the Moms for Liberty Summit, this summer, they had all the Republican heavy hitters. Trump was there. Uh, DeSantis was there. And that was an era when DeSantis wasn't completely, you know, uh, single digit polling in the presidential race. And so I think the Republican Party does see that that is the uh, way the winds are blowing. I think maybe one reason for that is um, children and the idea of we've got to protect the kids is maybe one of the only or most appealing ways Republicans can pitch a deeply unpopular um, social message. This idea that it's not okay to be gay, that, you know, trans people are not only invalid, but, you know, just, just, uh, I, I can't even come up with the euphemistic way to summarize what they think about trans people. The idea that black history is a hoax, it's got to be stamped out. And these are all messages that the right was pretty uh, unsuccessful at pushing before this kind of messaging. Uh, they were, you know, losing horribly in the Black Lives Matter front. Gay marriage is overwhelmingly popular. But when people put this into the context of we've got to protect the kids from sexualization, which 
just, you know, means the existence of queer people, um, suddenly you get a lot more sympathy, I think, for those reasons that we were talking about before, where people do believe that, you know, kids are being trafficked, that we've got to protect this innocence um, that is, you know, supposedly always under threat. So I uh, I think, unfortunately, they are onto something. Hmm. Well, one of the things that we've noticed just based on what the people we've talked to and what we've been researching is that it seems like there is a younger generation of Republicans coming up that are incredibly right wing. Their heroes aren't people like William Buckley. There are people like Nick Fuentes. And you wrote about a former DeSantis staffer, guy by the name of Nate Hotchman, who they fired after he was found to have shared and been involved in the creation of some pro-DeSantis videos that were, put it bluntly, just overly fascist. Um, do you see this guy as a unique case, or do you do you, you see what we're seeing with the the almost fascist beliefs being way more prominent amongst the younger set of Gen Z Republicans? I am seeing exactly what you're seeing, and it is wild to me because, um, you know, I these days uh, a lot of kind of know red state uh representatives offices or maybe you know the republican party of texas if you call into their shop you might get one of these uh zoomer fascists let's just say um and i i think they often skate because they know how to hide uh the the exact uh the exact uh, tone of their sympathies. But I mean, you're you're talking to one of these guys and there's a real, I'm a fairly young person, right? I'm, I'm 29. And there is a real moment where it's like, I see you, you see me and you're going to say something like deus vault when you hang up the phone. It's like, come on, dude. You're not, uh, <laughs> you're not, as you said, a National Review Republican, although I guess Nate Hochman did write for them. I mean, these guys are getting their... Uh, their political instruction from Fortune. They're getting their political instruction from Nick Fuentes. And, um, I, you know, to that end, I think those are some of the only uh, Republican institutions really making uh, interesting outreach to young people. No, I, I think you're right. They're they're good at appearing normal. and They don't necessarily look like they're white supremacist or that they hold some far right beliefs but they're out there and right now they're essentially in their 20s but in five years 10 years 20 years these are going to be the people that are running for office and making policy decisions and we don't have a good answer on what to do about that you can't force people to change their opinions but it does cast a shadow over the future and I don't know if you see a way to even reach these people or it, it does seem like a case of almost just terminally online and they have they've become this. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a real problem. And I wish I had a, a good solution to suggest. But unfortunately, I think um I think at least polling suggests that Gen Z is quite liberal. Right. Um, You know, that's young generations usually are, but, you know, it does seem like a broad trend with them. 
I think most Zoomers who choose to be Republican, at least to the extent that they're making a career in Republican politics, there's a lot of negative polarization there. They're not uh, just going to their liberal uh, college campus and be like, yeah, yeah, I might agree with you and I might disagree with you on some fiscal policy. There's a lot of identity formation and being opposed to liberals. And so that's where I think they start really mainlining uh, the hardcore white supremacist stuff, the real misogynist stuff, um, you know, the again, the legislating by 4chan type deal. Um, And so I don't know how you talk someone out of that when it's so baked into their identities, you know, be it political, personal, and with some of these guys professional as they start making their way through the GOP. Yeah, I'm sure you saw it yesterday, but um, the national Republican, the NRCC Twitter account yesterday Mm -hmm. tweeted out a fake 4chan green text. And that about Jamal Boom and, and the fire alarm mm-hmm. issue. And that to me was just so indicative of the mindset of whoever's running that social media account for them. Like, this is what you think is going to hit. Why do you think yeah. this is going to hit? Who are you? I mean, I tweeted it at the time, five bucks says the person's running this account is a griper. But it's definitely like, if you think that's going to resonate with your audience, you need to go outside and touch grass at this point. You are just absolutely because who recognizes that genuinely? Like uh-huh. I'd love, to, I'd love to see cross tabs. Who recognizes four <laughs> uh, chan green text? It's you know, internet poison people like us and a uh-huh. small selection of uh, youngish internet users who aren't even queuing on people anymore. Those people went to eight chan and then bounced. So like, what are you trying to signal here? What is this approving of? Um, and I just think it's, uh, I mean, fortunately, nobody looks at Twitter mo- anymore either, but its it was a very telling post. Yeah. It does make me wonder, and I'm, I'm sure it's something you've considered and looked at. These, these extreme beliefs remain unpopular. It's like their ideas about children's education. It remains unpopular, but if anything, it, continues to get more and more extreme with Gen Z or certain at least MAGA Republicans. And you do have to wonder, is there an end goal here or are they just following the content and it takes them where it takes them? I think a lot of these people are completely disinterested in, you know, democratic rule. They're, they don't care that these are unpopular programs. Jason Wilson at The Guardian just had a great piece yesterday about uh, the, uh, the uh the caesar reverence on right. The right these people want to be monarchs they want to be weird little princelings they want to have their uh, fiefdoms and they you know dream of kind of techno utopian feudalism like it's weird stuff that these guys are reading you engage with any of the quote-unquote right intellectuals right now you are going straight down to like Peter Thiel, singularity, techno slavery. Like it's weird stuff. I'm I'm not exaggerating by too much there. No, no, Um, not at all. And so I don't think that these folks really care about building consensus. They care about building power. um, And that's, you know, that's something that we're going to increasingly see in just openly anti-democratic actions by the right. Thinking about um, Texas refusing to... um, impeach its attorney general recently i mean these things are these things are blatant and they're saying well what are you going to do about it 
Well, and I just actually read that piece this morning by Jason Wilson, and I found myself thinking that I think he kind of nailed it when he said that the idea that these people have come to the conclusion that they may not win another democratic election. So Mm -hmm. more extreme measures need to be taken. And you're starting to see that, you know, coming out of Claremont, which is, you know, the big think tank down there, people are starting to say, well, time to, you know, take off the gloves, cross the Rubicon, whatever the phrase we're using this week for it is. (laughs) And we've got a real huge problem with that's the level that you're, starting to have to play to on that side. This is, this is the, this, there's no center here anymore. Not in the same sense. Well, and explaining it to people as it gets more and more extreme and weird has to become more and more difficult. And, and people, it almost is, is like the crazier it gets, the more of a shield they put up because I think a lot of people who don't get this stuff assume you're exaggerating or they, Oh, that's overblown. And they don't realize how real this is for these people. Yeah, It's exactly that. I mean, four years of a Trump administration, I think, inoculated people to all kinds of crazy. I was just saying yesterday, you were mentioning the the Bowman thing, Jamal Bowman. He's accused of maybe pulling a fire alarm. It's ambiguous. It had something to do with an emergency exit door. Okay, whatever. Um, (laughs) But it... And this discourse and the layers of this discourse and this analyzing it are coming simultaneously to both uh, Representative Paul Gosar and Donald Trump suggesting that we kill uh, General Mark Milley. Paul Gosar suggested that he uh, Milley be hanged for, I think it was, quote, promoting sodomy. I mean, that is nuts. That is fascist. That's that's the call for killing someone. That is just so beyond the pale of what's allowable anywhere on the left and that we kind of say well you know that's that's paul again wacky old dentist doing his thing <laughs> um and we have uh, we're on day like what five of Digimon bowman pulled the fire alarm discourse it's just it the the incentives and the scrutiny are just so off center um that i'm not really sure you know how we readjust that's a great question <laughs> Yeah, and and there are certain groups within the the mainstream media that will put Jamal Bowman pulling the fire alarm, which, okay, dumb thing to do, but they'll put that on the front page instead of, yeah, Paul Gosar or what Trump has, has threatened this week. And yeah, okay, you don't just want to repeat everything verbatim and, and give them this platform, but also we have to talk about it. And, and why aren't we talking about the fact that Kevin McCarthy has done nothing to Gosar. He hasn't condemned it. He hasn't taken him off committees. It's just, like you said, eh, that's Paul. Yeah. I mean, I think part of the problem is Paul Gosar was elected and his constituents have looked at that and said, well, okay, that's nice. I mean, it's, it's, we've just kind of accepted that that's the way it is and that's what's accepted for, uh, for, this kind of politician and i think we need to continually reinforce how weird that is how violent that is yeah definitely one of the other things and you used to do this podcast that we were big fans of and now is unfortunately not around anymore we get asked all the time what happened to fever dreams fever dreams was great that was my favorite podcast and like you you guys filled a real hole 
in the discourse that I don't think has necessarily been, you know, filled yet. So what are you planning on doing about that? Do you have any future plans to, to put something else together? Um, do any podcast producers want to give me $1 million? No, I'm joking. Um, I don't, I don't really know. I mean, this was me and Will Summers podcast at the daily beast wills at the Washington post now doing great things. Um, you know, it's always an open question. I write about this stuff, um, you know, at the daily beast, I kind of write about its inverse left stuff. Um, my sub stack, um, I mean, Hey, listen, it's, uh, that's media, baby. It's uh, it's rough. <laughs> miss the pod, miss our listeners, but hopefully folks are still reading. Definitely seems like they are. Definitely, because we still hear it. People are just like, oh, that was so great. Yeah. Well, and, and it's clear that you've been doing this a while because we know we've got a, a real pro on the on the pod when it's like I'm, I'm sitting here thinking, oh, we're, we're, we're not going to have to edit anything. Yeah, because you, <laughs> <This can be laughs> you, you've got this down. I am so much better behaved on this pod than the other one where I would like stop every five minutes to be like, Jesse, can you can you redo that for me? I'm going to go get some water. So we're rolling here. This is good. <laughs> That's great. Well. How can people support your work? How can people, what can people do to support you and the work that you're doing? Um, I mean, reading is great. I have, like I said, new pug, uh, pardon me, new, not, now, now I'm going to make you edit. I've got a new sub Sorry, stack. sorry, I ruined it. <laughs> I've got a new sub stack. It's called Mom Left. It's momleft.substack.com. I recently bought the domain name, so I might just be uh, Mom Left soon, but you know, I'm trying to get that off the ground. So readers super appreciated there. Uh, the conversation super appreciated there. I'm really interested in what folks have to say about this topic, because I think it is a little uh, under discussed for the amount of support that's there. And I have a book out, it's called Off the Edge, Flat Earthers, Conspiracy Culture, and Why People Will Believe Anything. And that's uh, bookstores and online. Very nice. Very nice. Yeah, the newsletter is great when we were prepping for this, I dove into that and it's amazing how much number one, how much writing you did and how much you continue to do, like Jay said earlier. And the topic, like you said, is a very kind of criminally under discussed subject. So you definitely go out and subscribe to that mom left the Substack; It's phenomenal. Kelly, thank you so much for being on with us today. We had a great time, um, learned a lot talking about some of this stuff and we have to do this again sometime. You were great. Absolutely. Thank you so much for having me. No problem. Thanks yeah. for coming on. Thanks. This was great. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Did Nothing Wrong podcast. If you want to hear more, you can find us on the web at didnothingwrongpod.com. Please make sure you subscribe to get our content straight into your inbox. You can also follow us on Twitter at James, the word for, and the letter M, all one word, and Grizza BJJ. G-R-Z-A-B-J-J, as well as DNW Pod. We're extremely grateful for paid subscriptions and donations that allow us to keep doing this important work. Thanks, and remember, everyone mentioned did nothing wrong.